amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spike podcast, I just wanted to let you know about a very special event we've got coming up. Spiked will be returning to the Battle of Ideas, Britain's premier ideas festival where free speech truly reigns. While we're there, Spiked will be recording a very special live edition of this podcast. That'll be on Saturday, the 28th of October at 12.15pm. For the pods, joining me will be Tom Slater, as per usual, plus some special guests, including Konstantin Kissin, Rakib Hassan and Inaya Falarin Iman. Now, if you haven't got your ticket already to the Battle of Ideas, then now is the time to get one. It won't just be our podcast. We'll also be recording a special edition of Last Orders with Tom Slater, Chris Snowden and special guests to come. Plus, across the weekend, there will be loads of spiked writers speaking on all kinds of panels, as well as hundreds of other fascinating thinkers. To get your ticket for the Battle of Ideas, just go to battleofideas.org.uk. And while you're there, you can use the promo code SPIKED to get yourself 20% off a ticket. That's battleofideas.org.uk and the promo code SPIKED to get yourself a 20% off discount. See you at the event. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me is this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to welcome to the show for the first time, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of the brand new book, Israelophobia, Jake Wallace-Simons. So, Welcome to the show. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing the war in Gaza, the return of Islamist terror to Europe, and Australia's rejection of the voice to Parliament. So at the time we're recording this, Israel is still uh, readying its uh, essentially ground uh, assault on Gaza. One of the big stories that's really caught the public imagination this week was the tragic bombing um, or the explosion in a hospital. Um, people really seized on this quite quickly. They pointed the finger at Israel, probably before we really knew all that much. What do you think that tells us about how the world sees Israel, how the world is responding to this conflict? Well, I think the first thing it tells us is is the effectiveness of Hamas propaganda. Mm. And by that, I don't just mean the propaganda that's put out by Hamas terrorists, but the, the propaganda that's put out by the various coronas of sympathizers that they have, ranging from the inner circle of people who actually hold jihadi, a jihadi worldview, mm. all the way through to the useful idiot in Britain who thinks, oh, there are two sides to Hamas on there, or there are two sides to every story, or the Israelis are all, you know, all that equivocation. Um, and I think that it's just, it's fascinating to me that the, um, the initial reporting leaned heavily on uh, Hamas officials yeah. saying that this was an Israeli act of aggression. I can't imagine the BBC or any other respectable broadcaster relying to the same extent on officials from Islamic State 
when the RAF was mm. bombing mm -hmm. the hell out of uh, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Yeah, Islamic State and Hamas and Al-Qaeda share the same ideological root in the Muslim Brotherhood. It, it, it spawned these three, these three major terrorist groups. And the Muslim Brotherhood itself was, was spawned out of a mixture of Nazi, Nazi ideology with Islamism during the Second World War. Uh, and, you know, they used this, we, we've seen over the past 10 days that they used the same techniques, had the same worldview. They're all trying to take over the world and make it into a caliphate. They all, you know, behead people, have no compassion for women, children, babies. Um, and so, and to sort of wind this back to the moment when the bomb, the, the, the rocket hits the hospital. Yeah. And the BBC receives a call from the from the Hamas, from the ISIS, mm. probably, you know, saying that was the Israelis and then reports it almost within a whisker of being fact, tells us so much about how much sympathy, how much legitimacy this ISIS-style terror group has managed to get from useful idiots over the last 20 years. And and on the other side, do, you know, do you think it says something about the sort of hatred of Israel, the way that people would just say, that's the kind of thing they would do. I'd expect them to do something as cruel as this. Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, and that stretches back such a long time. You know, not just 75 years ago when Israel was established, but I'm talking about thousands of years. You know, you can no longer say that, as people did in the Middle Ages, that the Jews uh, kidnap Christian children to kill them and use their blood in their ritual cooking. But you can say that the Zionists are baby killers. Yeah. It's the same thing. And because it's so deeply culturally embedded, because Christianity is still the kind of cornerstone of Western civilization, so much so that we don't even recognize it, mm. um, those ideas have a landing in our cultural unconscious. They feel right to some extent. And, um, you know, and there's been, you know, the, the, the ideas that have been put out about Israel from the beginning for years, for, for decades, resonate with, with, with those, with that old anti-Semitism and update it mm. for the modern age in the form of Israelophobia. And as I write in, in my book, the demonization of Israel um, demands destruction, just like it did in the Second World War. Yeah. The demonization of the Jews as being the dark force behind all that's malign in the world led to the obvious conclusion, well, if we want a better world, we need to exterminate the Jews. The drip drip of constant demonization of Israel that we've seen for decades as being baby killers, as being colonizers, as being white supremacists, as, as ethnic cleansers and apartheid state, racists. All those lies eventually lead to one conclusion, which is that the only way to make the world a better place is to get rid of the Jewish state. So it's barely just been over a week now since Hamas, you know, Hamas attack, the worst anti-Semitic atrocity since the Holocaust. And yet we're hearing that it's uh, Israel, despite even they haven't even started their offensive properly, mm -hmm. is engaged in an act of ethnic cleansing, is engaged in an act of, of genocide. I mean, what do you make of the way those words are thrown around? Well, it's so incredibly cynical. It's so distorting of what is actually happening on the ground. I mean, Brendan wrote in his column this week about how everything that Israel does, it's accused of war crimes. If it mm. tries to clear people out of the area, it's a war crime. If it tries to retaliate in any format, it's a war crime. There is been this kind of 
combination of, I think, muddled thinking amongst kind of centrist liberal opinion who seem desperate to turn this into a kind of both sides sort of conflict. You know, they can just express their sympathy and concern for the innocence on all sides, which of course everyone has as, as a human being, I'm sure, and just kind of dwell in that without having to look at the specific, vicious, racist, anti-Semitic, ex- annihilationist, as you were suggesting there, Jake, kind of character of what Hamas um, did when they, you know, launched that pogrom in southern Israel. Um, and then, of course, you've got the, essentially, the kind of Western Islamists and the woke left useful idiots who are to a completely different degree, essentially just repeating kind of Hamas propaganda and so on. What's interesting at this point was that, again, you would think, given what happened that Saturday morning, given the enormity of it and all the rest of it, that it would make them look at this conflict in a slightly different way, and yet it really hasn't, to the point where when, again, the um, the fires and explosions of that hospital were first reported, the rush to assign blame because it fit the Israelophobic narrative effectively that's just not kind of morally deeply questionable. Um, it also has tremendous real-world consequences, and we've seen that in the course of the past couple of days. First of all, with the kind of uh, the protests that we've seen across various Arab states, the kind of more pressure that's being put on those particular regimes to intervene more heavily in one way or another. And most sickeningly, of course, we saw in Berlin, in Germany, where you had a synagogue that was firebombed, Molotov cocktails thrown at it. There is an incredibly high cost to the credulity of the media on these particular questions. And you would have hoped that, um, again, the, the enormity of the situation would have, would have actually shaken them out of a combination of kind of lazy thinking, lazy journalism and lazy prejudice. But it really hasn't. Um, and you, Going forward, you can only hope that this particular example serves as a lesson as to why it's so important that they don't just repeat Hamas press releases verbatim and treat that as a news report, which is essentially what has happened so far. Definitely. And and Jake, one one thing that your book does very effectively is it takes on some of the sort of key myths that um, people or, or I guess received ideas that people have about about Israel. You know, that it's a sort of colonialist, that it's um, necessarily um, violent or an apartheid state. I mean, what do you think are sort of the the key ones that just need to be taken on? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you're talking about the received ideas. Mm. I think it's in, it's it's vital to understand where those ideas have been received from. Mm. And where they've been received from is Soviet propaganda during the Cold War, uh, which was extensive and it was hugely funded. Uh, it was an operation that involved hundreds of books, thousands of hours of radio broadcasting, tens of thousands of leaflets, covert and overt diplomatic means, publications in the West, uh, just a, a huge propaganda drive to turn the West against Israel, which was perceived as a bastion of American uh, interests in the region. And all of the uh, untruths which plague the debate today, which do not stand, do not withstand the slightest scrutiny, were invented in the Kremlin by what was known as Zionologists, who were basically far-right ultranationalists who were told to put their anti-Semitism in the skin of Marxist-Leninist discourse. Um, and in some way, in some cases, they did it only by changing the term Jew for Zionist. Yeah. And those lies include um, Israel is uh, engaged in a genocide against the Palestinians. We hear that a lot, particularly now. Well, the Palestinian population has increased fivefold since mm. Israel's establishment. That's a, a pretty bad genocide. You know, Israel is accused of being 
a white supremacist state. Well, more Israelis are non-white than are white. And even the ones who are white, that's questionable. Israel's accused of being a colonialist state. Look at the history. It's a post-colonial state arising as a result of a carve-up by the Allied powers following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, along with lots of other states, nation-states, Lebanon and Syria, for example, you know, Pakistan and India, the position of Ireland and so forth. Um, uh, It it is uh, called an apartheid state, probably first and foremost. The head of Israel's national bank is an Arab. Uh, A Muslim Supreme Court judge has sentenced a former Israeli prime minister to prison for corruption. Pretty odd type of apartheid. Um, Not only that, in the Arab states, there are no Jews because they've expelled them all. Where's the apartheid? There are 20% of Israel's population are Arabs. So all of these lies are quite easily disproven by a single look at the evidence. Mm. And yet because of the effectiveness of Soviet propaganda and because of, as we were saying, the sort of the, the backdrop of anti-Semitic assumptions which we carry with us because of our Christian inheritance, um, that the, these lies have become you know, widespread. People articulate them without thinking and they're being updated all the time. I mean, yeah. ju- you know, just this... At the moment, these past few days, people have said to me who aren't anti-Semitic, have said to me, well, Gaza's an open-air prison, isn't it? Why is Gaza an open-air prison? I mean, of course, Israel has been securing the border with Gaza, and the last 10 days have shown us exactly why it's had to do that. That's not the same as creating an open-air prison. Israel withdrew unilaterally from Gaza in 2005, gave them all of its resources, gave them all the infrastructure, and secured the border to protect its citizens. That's not an open-air prison. Mm. And this other lie, you know, Gazans have nowhere to go. Israel tells them to move out of the firing zone. They've got nowhere to go. Well, I've, I know someone in Gaza. My former colleague, I was, was a formerly a foreign correspondent. My fixist is in, in Gaza now. He's Gazan. I spoke to him yesterday. He's in the south, staying with friends uh, to avoid the, the violence. And it's not easy. Of course, there are yeah. attacks in the south as well. But people can move from one part of Gaza to another. Um, and look, you know, I'm not going to get into that right now. But what I'm saying is that there are so many untruths and bits of propaganda and lies that are circulating that are quite easily disproven. And a lot of them have the roots in, in, in the sinister Soviet propaganda effort that happened during the Cold War. And, and Tom, another layer to this is the kind of identity politics that's mm. been um, almost supercharged this kind of uh, distaste for Jews. Um, how, how have you seen that play into the, this in, in the past week or so? Well, I think what's been really disturbing is that um, the kind of identitarian sort of pyramid of victimhood has been used to not only provide cover to Hamas terrorism. So in this very simplistic kind of narrative, um, the the Hamas terrorists are effectively the pressed. And even if they might even if they might act out a little bit, which is almost how they're describing this vicious murderous pogrom. um, That's almost to be expected, which, as we've talked about on the show last week, I think is a profoundly racist way to talk about <laughs> anyone it's almost the suggestion that um again the, the darker skinned people in this equation um are naturally have no agency whatsoever mm. of themselves this is just what they do so that's been incredibly grim i think the other layer to it is something that has been building in supposedly progressive circles for some time now which is not just making excuses for anti-semitism but is actually expressing its own virulent form of anti-semitism it's not just having a blind spot for jew hatred it's actually expressing it yourself and you've seen that um as you were alluding to that jake in the way in which the kind of fusion of the old often ancient anti-semitic tropes with the rage against israel in the form of the idea that they're delighting in killing 
children, the mm. idea that they have the rest of the West by the balls because they effectively control everything. Um, the fact that, um, and this is a kind of, the way in which these tropes would routinely appear in left-wing discourse, cartoons and so on, over and over again in recent years, and it's all just exploded out onto the surface once again. Um, you see it also very much mirroring when you see people on the left talking about Israel having no right to exist. That is fundamentally what Hamas believes as well. And we, uh, we've got a glimpse of what they would be prepared to do to bring about that kind of reality. So I think it, it's woken us up to how not only is that kind of woke politics, so often quite perverse, unseemly, divisive way to look at questions of race, inequality and so on, but it has rehabilitated the world's oldest hatred in the midst of supposedly progressive people. And what's so deeply unsettling about it is that they really don't seem to recognise that whatsoever, even when it's pointed out to them again and again and again, essentially. Yeah, it does seem to sort of be a denial about it. You know, people will insist that they are not being anti-Semitic or they have no intention to be. I mean, what's your experience been with that? Well, I mean, the thing about anti-Semitism, one of its main characteristics is that it has no ability to recognize itself and it's able to constantly present itself as being on the side of the angels, mm. as being a virtuous thing. Um, I mean, going back to the Middle Ages, it was legitimized in the language of Christianity, of religion. Yeah. You know, it was it was right to oppress, marginalize, massacre, expel the Jews because they killed Christ. So it was God's work in some way. You're on the side of the angels. Mm. Twenty in the twentieth century, as I mentioned, it was only right to uh again, um, you know, marginalize, expel, and murder the Jews en masse because you were exterminating a malign influence from the world. So the SS were told that it's a hard job, but you've got to do it for the sake of your children, mm. grandchildren, and the world. They believed they were doing the right thing or tried to believe it. In fact, in, in Hannah Arendt's book uh, on the, the banality of evil, the fam her famous book about the Eichmann trial, she talks very vividly about this moral inversion. Yeah. Whereby in ordinary times, uh, people know that we mustn't kill, steal, send people to their deaths, rob their possessions, uh, and so forth. Even if, in the back of people's mind, occasionally you might feel like it, that is suppressed. Whereas during the Nazi period, it was inverted. Yeah. So you were told, you must kill, you must steal, you must send six million people to their deaths. And people did it, and they were able to suppress the small voice in the back of their head that said, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And you see the same thing today, that the hatred of Jews is given this legitimization. Mm. It's taken on the, in exactly the same way the, 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 the language of virtue. I mean, the Jews are accused of all of the cardinal sins of our age, you know, of identity politics. Yeah. They're, as we said, they're accused of racism. Mm. You know, Israel's a racist state, we're told, because racism is the cardinal sin of, of 2023. They're accused of ethnic cleansing, of white supremacy, you know, of apartheid, all the worst things that our culture derides is pinned on Israel. Yeah. In exactly the same way. And so it's natural if you're if you're somebody who would fight against oppression, fight against apartheid, fight against racism, fight against the Jews. Mm. It's the right thing to do. It's that siren voice, that seduction. You can feel like a good person. You can channel all that righteous anger and rage into destroying the world's only Jewish state. And you can be applauded for doing so. And that is clearly 
the, exactly the same form of anti-Semitism, but reskinned to become Israelophobia, as I say in my book. Sorry, Fraser, I know you want to move on, but um, the one thing I'd say is, as well, and this has uh, become a feature of the discussion, is people are often trying to change the subject. They'll often say, but mm. of course, aren't you concerned about the, the plight of the innocence of Gaza? Of course, everyone you ask who is sane will say, of course, they're concerned about that. But that concern has to at least begin with a recognition of the fact that it is a disaster and a tragedy that they've come to be led by these theocratic, genocidal lunatics who hold them yeah. in complete contempt, who have openly, explicitly said they use them as human shields. Direct quotes. This is not something that's been projected or just described of them. This is something that they've bragged about previously, who in previous situations have also killed innocent lives because of their rockets misfiring and so on. This is there's been examples you point out in your, in your book, Jake, about the New York Times portraying certain Gazans as the victims of Israeli airstrikes when actually that is what had taken place in certain instances. Um, the leadership of this organisation in Qatar are living in absolute luxury. I mean, the gentleman who um, put out the call for global jihad the other week, Khalid Mashaw, he has this multi-billion property portfolio. These are people who are not on the side of the Palestinians. They've put them in abject threat, um, not just throughout this current crisis, but previously as well. And surely if people want to um, really express their concern and solidarity and so on, it should at least begin with a recognition that allowing this theocratic, medieval cults to rule over them is the defining tragedy in this particular period. Mm. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that when people like me say, um, you know, you're not treating Israel fairly, you're judging Israel by different standards, you're demonizing Israel, look at how you look at the other, how you judge the other countries in the world, then the chorus is, oh, that's whataboutery. Mm. <laughs> and yet, when they say now, what about Gaza? Yeah. Suddenly the idea of whataboutery seems to vanish like morning dew. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. So, tragically, uh, Islamist terrorism has returned to Europe on Friday in Ara in northern France. A teacher was stabbed. And then on Monday, three Swedish people were shot. Two of them died ahead of a football match friendly in Brussels. Tom, um, these events came after the call you alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. about the, the call to jihad uh, from a, a leader of Hamas. But we don't necessarily know that they are linked. In any case, it is still a very worrying development. It, I mean, it would be a hell of a coincidence is one thing to say. I mean, in both of these cases, so the 20-year-old in Northern France, as you were suggesting, um, he pledged allegiance to the Islamic State previously, but the authorities there are still saying that they're open to this being linked to the Hamas conflict because, of, as we've already been talking about, this is very much seen in the context of a kind of global Islamist terrorist movement. You know, mm. uh, Similarly, the, um, the shootings in Brussels, um, again, yet the individual um, who has actually been shot and killed by police now, uh, pledged allegiance to Islamic State beforehand. It would seem that part of the motive here 
relates to uh, the recent Koran burning controversies in Sweden, which he makes a kind of oblique reference to in one of his videos. But again, the authorities there are leaving open the possibility that this is connected in some way, inspired, was the spark for something that he might have been wanting to do for some time. Um, and so it's really kind of brought it home. But then it hasn't, it hasn't, because certainly in the UK, at least, I mean, I know there's obviously a lot going on in the world right now, but um, particularly the, the attack in northern France was talked about for about an hour and then completely moved on from. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I found particularly chilling. Um, and in both cases, actually, they really underline um, the tremendous failure that various Western European governments have had in trying to tackle this particular problem with allowing it to incubate amongst certain portions of the population just in basic security failures as well i mean in the case of the um brussels shooter um who is a tunisian national he has been on the radar of the authority since 2016 he was actually there illegally he had his asylum application rejected in 2020 they were already aware that he had been radicalized but the mm. response of the belgian justice minister was we had so many <laughs> referrals at that yeah. point it was impossible to keep track of him and a not dissimilar picture in relation to the 20 year old Chechen who um, committed this horrible atrocity in northern France who um, was a known Islamist extremist he was interviewed by the French um, by the by the French security services the day before he launched this particular attack his father who was seemingly also an extremist was deported in 2018 so again you've kind of got this sense of foreboding and a kind of sense of could we be on the kind of cusp of another kind of wave of these kinds of attacks which are been given a kind of rocket fuel by what's been going on in um in israel uh but at the same time there being that real inability to grasp the threat mm. amongst various western european countries which seems struck with the same problem which is that there is a small minority but not insignificant amount of people who are fully paid up islamist terrorists waiting for an opportunity to strike and you just can't help but feel that um as ever there's been a kind of sense of complacency in taking that threat seriously yeah, Jake, it does. It does feel like you know, whenever whenever these attacks happen, we do move on very quickly. Uh, we don't seem to, I don't know, have much of a discussion about how to actually, you know, properly confront this this threat, even though it's you know it's persistent. It's been around for decades. Um, what what do you make of that kind of res sort of response? Well, I mean, I I um, was very involved in in uh, in the last spate of terror attacks that. Um, that started off in 2015 mm. because back, back then I was a foreign reporter and so I covered them all from on the ground yeah um the Bastan attacks in Paris Nice Stockholm Berlin uh Istanbul Sri Lanka the bombings there and others that I've uh, that I've left out um Berlin uh Brussels mm. yeah and uh in each of those, or many of those cases, uh, the attackers came from areas of the city, their respective cities, that were almost no-go zones for police. In Brussels, for example. Mm. Uh, in Brussels, I recall covering the attacks there some years ago. Um, and they came from Molenbeek. Mm. And Molenbeek is, um, it, it, it is one of those. It, it's It's... Yeah, almost exclusively populated by uh, first generation, second generation um, immigrants from the Middle East and, mm. and 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 North Africa and Africa itself. Um, it's very very hard to police. There's a lot of extremism there, and I remember from the time that the that the local population closed ranks to protect those terrorists, even though they didn't necessarily support them 
uh, in their ideology. There was yeah. enough sympathy and suspicion of the outside mm. of police to close ranks. Um, and this is a significant problem. Yeah. Significant problem. I mean, you know, cities in Sweden where there's, I've covered the gang warfare there, mm. which is uh, coming out of those, uh, you know, immigrant communities. Um, a lot of it has come, uh, you know, came over into Europe uh, with the migration trail, uh, which again I covered because it was really beginning when I began to when I, when I started off on the road, um, and and it's a policing nightmare. Uh, it's very very hard to follow all these strains of of, of gangland violence, yeah. of, of mafioso, tribal warfare, and of jihadism some of which overlap or interlink mm. Mm. or support each other, uh, relate to each other. And I think that really outside of that, in the West as a whole, I think we do not have the moral structure with which to acknowledge what's going on without being afraid that we're being racist. Yeah, We don't have the language. We don't have the, the, the confidence in ourselves mm. that we're not racist. We don't have that confidence to be able to recognize the problem and diagnose it and deal with it without undermining ourselves, fearing that we're racist. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like the Rochdale yeah. grooming gangs, you know, uh, because partly because for years we've been undermining our own sense of self, under undermining our own moral compass by but with, with all this... Um, this move to campaign against ourselves and against our history and against our values that we're structurally racist mm. that we have white privilege without even realizing it yeah that we're racist by default that we have this original sin that we're that we're post-lapsarian we're mm. born in sin we're born in the sin of racism and we can no longer we can no longer we can't breathe we can't act we can't make judgments we can't uh, stand up for ourselves and our values because all of that is tainted with with entrenched racism and therefore, we we don't have the ability to look at these problems mm. in immigrant communities mm. realistically for what they are. Um, and it, within that, they can't, it is as you were saying, is a sort of reverse racism. Yeah, that we can't treat them mm. like every other citizen of this country or of the West or of Europe, and enforce properly and expect the same standards as we expect of other, other citizens. The only way is to turn a blind eye because we don't want to be racist and therefore it's the soft bigotry of low expectations that we express towards them. Yeah. So it's this total moral mess that we found ourselves in mm. and it all comes from undermining our own values willfully. It's self-sabotage that we've been engaging in for not just a few years but for a long time in this country that's hollowed out our moral fibre and made us unable to deal with this sort of situation. I, I think that's a really important point as well because I think the, the moral mess that we're in sorting that out is the prerequisite for all the other problems this is not just a technical issue yeah insofar <laughs> as do we have enough people keeping tabs on known extremists and so on if you if you fundamentally don't take the threat seriously and the fact that it all stems from this bizarre situation we've ended up with which is to be a good person you have to ignore some very terrible things you have to turn a blind eye some, to some of the most horrendous abuse terrorism you name it is something that we've really got to get a grip on um, not least because of the fact that um it's so frankly ridiculous it helps absolutely no one and also it buys into what seemed to me to be some pretty basic um stereotypes i mean the idea that to take islamist terrorism seriously risks alienating british muslims say 
is to conflate the two yeah. perfectly. It's to suggest that the, the Venn diagram is actually just a circle. But that's essentially how people carry on. And I think it's it's worth, just as an example, I mean, it's almost two years to the day since David Amos was murdered in his mm-hmm. constituency surgery by an Islamist terrorist. Um, two years ago, uh, that's something which is, broadly speaking, forgotten about. He's talked about almost as if he died of an unfortunate accident or something like this. And it's... If anyone remembers the debate that we had after that, it was absurd. It was about how we need to clamp down on people trolling politicians on the internet. We need to be kind to politicians. Aren't they nice, you know, kind serving people and so on? There was a proposal for a David's law to stop people being mean to politicians on the internet when he wasn't killed by a tweet. Yeah. But this, the, the ability to displace the actual problem because of this profound fear of being racist, which can actually end up with you being racist, mm. if you see what I mean. Uh, is something that surely has got to be brought a, a, a stop to if we're going to actually tackle this. But there's just no signs of that uh, awakening, shall we say, on the, on the part of the elites at this point. So the Australian public has quite decisively rejected a proposal for what was called the voice to parliament. This would essentially have set up a constitutionally affirmed body that would have been able to advise the government or the parliament of the day on indigenous affairs. But a lot of the details we actually um, were left out. Um, by the Labour Prime Minister who who put this forward. Um, 60% voted no, no one in every single Australian state. Um, and it's come as a bit of a shock to the Australian political class, Tom. Yeah, no, it, it's very um, reminiscent of the kind of wake of Brexit or the uh, Trump referendum as far as the recriminations have been pretty embittered um, on waking up to realise that it's such a horrible racist country, people threatening to leave, you know, all these kinds of tropes that we've become accustomed to. Um, I'm always struck by the shock that um, a lot of the kind of campaigners on the losing sides of these referendums have. First of all, because it just it reflects a kind of detachment from your fellow citizens, mm. which is quite profound in this case, as it was in Brexit and others. Um, but also because of the fact that surely this result perfectly fits your narrative, which is... Yeah. <laughs> Didn't they think we were racist anyway? Full of horrible <laughs> racist people, who of course, wouldn't actually um, accept this kind of setup. So all of that's been very, very familiar. But again, and this is a sort of theme of a lot of our discussion today, it just strikes me as getting things entirely the wrong way around. I mean, what mm. this proposal was trying to do was to try and dilute the idea of one person, one vote, but for supposedly politically progressive reasons. I mean, it was trying to effectively formalise and um, place a form of identity politics into the Australian constitution itself to suggest there are different kinds of citizens on the basis of race. I mean, there was a, there was a very strong attempt to underplay what this body would actually be but the fact that they had to have a referendum on it at all speaks to what a profound change it would have been even the Labour Prime Minister said it would have taken a very brave government to ignore what this particular advisory body might propose and there was all sorts of debates about whether or not it would even have to kind of legal force that if you ended up having to fight this out through the courts what would happen so it was a profound change and one that was quite in a sense reactionary because it was about trying to um, do away with a kind of very Australian sort of egalitarian sort of ideal and mm. suggest that, no, you do have to carve people up and carve them up in such a way that would make division permanent, that would suggest that white Australians are forever stained by racial guilt effectively and that Aboriginal Australians are forever the kind of victims of history. So for a campaign that was supposed to be about finally closing the gap, it seems to actually just want to enshrine the gap forever in the mm. Australian constitution. So I'm very glad it was um, rejected. It's another reminder that um, democracy is often the, the great sort of bulwark against all of these dreadful ideas. But uh, the losing side are not taking it well, to put it lightly, definitely. And Jake, it seems as if um, this example seems like a, a, a sort of perfect example where in modern identity politics, we've abandoned um, the sort of Martin Luther King ideal of all are created equal, 
you know, judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And we've gone for this. Actually, let's judge people by their skin color again. Let's treat people according to their race. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't help but wonder that if this law would have passed, how would you be able to define an Aboriginal person? Precisely, yeah. There would need to have been some quite complex race laws. Mm. You know, how would you, what happens if you're, to use a slightly loaded term, Mischlinger, mm. mixed race? Yeah, I mean, that obviously derives from the Nazi era with people who were half Jewish. Um, how much Aboriginal blood would you need to qualify for this extra status? Would you, in order to preserve that Aboriginal bloodline, mm. in order to preserve that voice, would you need to have some sanction against marrying somebody who was non-Aboriginal? Um, I mean, I'm being slightly provocative, but you know what I mean. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah totally. Um, and I think that your point about Martin Luther King is a very pertinent one because this is American stuff. Yeah. yeah. This is not Australian stuff. Mm. This is the imported ideas from the States, just in the same way as we've imported Black Lives Matter principles. Yeah. You know, and as Tomiwa Orilade talks about in his book, uh, This Is Not America, mm. um, you know, we've started using terms like BIPOC, yeah. Black Indigenous Person of Colour. Well, <laughs> Indigenous here, let's say, does not mean quite the same thing. It's quite a loaded uh, <laughs> description. <laughs> when it comes out, you want to run a mile. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and if you wind back to Martin Luther King, you know, at that time, uh, his principle was integrationist. Mm. You know, I'm black and I'm American. Yeah. And I'm equally as American as you. It, talking to a white person. Yeah. Um, I belong here. I'm of this place. Um, and the, the Jews stood shoulder to shoulder with him in that fight. And there is a stream of thought that supported that approach. Mm. You know, um, James Baldwin. Yeah. Ralph Ellison. People like that. Um, but... That was supplanted by the Black Power movement, by essentially a radical left uh, sort of socialist um, movement, which rejected American Americanness as an identity in mm. favor for Pan Africanism, mm. the, the 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 nation of, of of black people. We're black, and we're not of this place. And you know, being black is our identity, and that that's kind of brought with it critical race theory yeah. uh, and the idea that uh, black people and the sort of militant approach of, um, of not, not seeking to integrate but seeking to isolate and overcome. And all of that has been imported into the Australian debate uh, where it's not enough for the Aboriginal community to be seen as equal in a, in a way that looks beyond race. They've got to be seen as more than equal hmm. to compensate uh, to elevate them from downtrodden to above the people who were oppressing them, and all of this sort of very toxic, all of these very toxic anti-democratic ideas, as you said, mm. come from America, yeah, um, and from from a Jewish point of view as well. They, Jews always get lumped onto the side of the the, the the white oppressor, yeah, because of the myth of Jewish power. Mm. So it feels uh, it feels relevant and, and personal to me from that point of view. But certainly, uh, I'm like Tom, very glad that it was rejected. Tom, um, just finally, you know, clearly there are huge problems that Indigenous people face in, in Australia. Um, you know, huge gap in education, in wages and all kinds of things like that. But wasn't something like this really um, more geared towards the elite, I guess, 
um, whether that's Aboriginal elites, but also, you know, the white elite just quite like this idea, it seems. Well, it's overwhelmingly the most enthusiastic sections of the Australian population for the yes side were um, metropolitan, quite wealthy voters who I'm sure skewed heavily white Australian. Now, it's worth pointing out, it seems by the polls, that the majority of um, Aboriginal people did vote for this, which is not a huge um, shock necessarily. Uh, but it is also working out there was a diversity of opinion. I mean, the yeah. leader of the No campaign was a woman called Jacinta Price, who is of Aboriginal heritage herself. There are a number of very prominent um, Aboriginal people who were campaigning for No precisely because of the reason that they, they were saying this, is, this has nothing to do with closing those inequalities that you talk about, which are particularly concentrated in the very rural or very remote parts of Australia, where there are all kinds of profound social um, economic problems which have never really properly been dealt with. And a point they made, what I thought was very powerful, and I think gets to the heart of a lot of what's wrong with this identity politics, is that it's fundamentally not really interested in solving these problems. Mm. It's not fundamentally interested in realising the promise of equality and so on. It's about making this classification as victim permanent mm. because it provides a perverse, if limited, form of power and empowerment um, in that sort of sense. Where I think what we've seen is a, is a complete rejection of that, and that can only really be for the positive because not only is it divisive and ugly in all the ways that we've been talking about it's also a, a fundamental dead end for people yeah. on the ground um, which is why as I say it was very encouraging to see us rejected so emphatically Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast we're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com see you next time Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.